Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm Mark Locks. I'm the co-host along with Sally Lorish of this new podcast. This week we have Jeff Dean on the show to talk about his new book, Organised Crime, Policing Illegal Business Entrepreneurialism, which is published by Oxford University Press. This is a practical book about organised crime. Jeff and his co-authors, Ivor Vassing and Peter Gottschalk, approach organized crime from a business perspective and try to provide a means of investigating this type of crime from a market point of view. They see an organized crime enterprise like any other business enterprise and say that it must go through the same stages of growth that are experienced by a legal commercial business. The authors are experienced researchers in the methodologies of policing and want to provide a recognition of the entrepreneurial basis of criminal enterprises and investigative methods that pay heed to these characteristics of large criminal organisations. I enjoyed talking to Jeff today, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Okay, hello and welcome to the inaugural podcast of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm Mark Locks, the co-host, along with Sally Lorish, who will be also putting up podcasts for this channel. Today, we have Jeff Dean on the show to talk about his new book, Organised Crime, Policing Illegal Business Entrepreneurialism, which is published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Jeff is actually one of the co-authors of this book, uh, along with Ivar Falsing and Peter Gottschalk. I might not have pronounced those names correctly. I think Jeff can correct me on the pronunciations. But um, so, Jeff, uh, to start off with, uh, do you want to tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Mark. Um, well, it's, it's, um, I'm an associate professor in the School of Justice and uh, I've worked for um, many years uh, in the Queensland Police Service as a lecturer in human relations before coming to the university some 20 years ago and specialising in police and law enforcement as my sort of discipline area. Um, in terms of the book, really this book, uh, which came out in... 2010 is really a follow-up book to another book I had written with um, Oxford University Press in 2007 um, and that was published by them in the UK on knowledge management policing legal policing um, you know policing and law enforcement and um, it really from that book I decided to to set the stage for how I would apply the the concept of knowledge management knowledge managed policing in that book which I developed to uh, to really organize crime and that's how it came about right right do you want to explain to everyone what you mean by knowledge management because a lot of people probably don't quite understand or they think about the IT systems of knowledge management yeah sure well and, and, and indeed, knowledge management's been captured, if you like, by IT in the business world to, um, in terms of developing competitive advantages in a, in a global environment, which is what it's mainly been used for. But really, when I did the research for that original book, it, it, it seemed to me that um, you really had to make some changes to the way knowledge management is seen if you're going to get it to work in policing. Um, it's, it's a totally different context to a business world. Um, and therefore, I set about doing that, and as I got more involved with it, it became um, just a, 
uh, an obsession, I suppose, to to nail that. So uh, I think that first book really did lay that down well. And, and I've refined it and trying to distinguish knowledge management in policing and law enforcement, which is that first book. Um, and that's why I've, I've, I've coined the term, if you like, knowledge managed policing, to, to join those two contexts together. Because if you just use the word knowledge management, people immediately think, as you just did, IT business. Um, so what knowledge managed policing means to me is that really it's first and foremost it's a conceptually oriented framework rather than a technologically oriented one as in the business world but really it's a conceptual uh, orientation because you have to think about it differently for policing and it's a framework about managing and systematically if you like the application of, of knowledge and in this case police knowledge um, you manage that so you can enhance police effectiveness and how you manage that is through harnessing and integrating what I would define as practitioner-based tacit knowledge. That's knowledge in the heads of, of experienced police. They're often overlooked in terms of knowledge management uh, and because people think about, well, we'll just get an IT system, that'll do the job. But really, it's the practitioners with, with years of experience that you need to be able to understand and appreciate and develop because they're the ones that create knowledge. Um, once it's been created, sure, you have IT systems that can capture it, that store it, can transfer it, can share it, can integrate it and can apply it. But those systems have to be designed specifically for use with police and they have to be interoperable as opposed to a lot of standalone systems that police can have which which really then doesn't get them much value for money. So that's in a nutshell what sort of knowledge managed policing is about. So in a way it's about um, trying to work out the process by which good policing is done via their management of their own internal uh, knowledge and making that implicit knowledge explicit. Yep. That's right. It really is turning that sort of tacit, hidden, implicit knowledge into something that is uh, that they can utilise in, in a more formal way through making it explicit or codified in, in some way. Um, yeah. And that's a very hard process. The, 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 out of that, the second perhaps major issue in, in knowledge management in the business world as well as in policing is, is then how do you share that in a, in a meaningful way? Uh, and, and knowledge sharing is very different to knowledge transfer. And knowledge transfer is simply, you know, we'll plug in a computer and stick something on the intranet and say, have a look at it, people. You know, that's, that's just transferring it, pushing boxes around, if you like, as opposed to sharing it, which is much more a two-way street, a much more interactive thing, a bit like we're having here with this, this discussion you know, about the book. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a process we both contribute to, and hopefully uh, we'll advance your understanding of it as a re- result of somebody just reading a, a review of the book or a blog, you know? That's right. That's right. I, I think I have to uh, admit in the interest of full disclosure that Jeff and I work <laughs> together, and we're actually one floor apart right now while we're holding this conversation, <laughs> and Jeff is the master of the visual display of knowledge and information, so both of his books are full of uh, charts and graphs and diagrams that we just won't be able to communicate over an audio <laughs> recording. Yeah, um, people hopefully will just have to buy the book. I mean, that's right. I have a, <laughs> I have a funny, yeah, I have a funny story about that, Mark. When I was with when my first book came out of Oxford University Press in the UK, um, the commissioning editor just said, "When we finally sort of got the thing underway," and and he said, and I kept sending him all these visualizations. All these diagrams, and he said, 
how many diagrams do you have in this book? You know, and uh, I ended up, you know, well, well into the sixties or so. I just can't quite remember um, in that first book. And but, I, but he said we've never published a book with that many diagrams in it before. <laughs> so uh, so when I got the second contract, the the, the first thing the commissioner said, how many diagrams are we going to have in it this time? And I said, well, listen, I'll do you a favour. There'll only be around about fifty. <laughs> it turned out to be fifty-two. So oh, that's good. So you restrained <laughs> yourself. It, restrain myself, yeah, a little. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to be able to tell us about uh, the co-authors to the book and how you came to work with them? Yeah, yeah, it's that's an interesting journey in itself. Uh, um, I'm, I'm the principal author um, because my other two colleagues are Norwegian, and while they they write good English and and that, in in writing a complex book like this, it was really a case of of having to have one person that that to get the thing to flow, to write it, and to 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 pull it together. So really, I I consider both Eva Fassing and Peter Gottschalk, <laughs> yeah. those two guys, um, as the uh, as some highly paid researchers that I had working with me, um, that became also uh, authors because of their contribution to uh, to finding stuff for me that I eventually conceptualised in in the in all those diagrams and pulled together in the book. Eva, I've known for about seven years. He's um, he's the chief superintendent at the moment at the Norwegian Police University College in Oslo. But I first came across him when he worked for CRISPOS, which is the Criminal Investigation Division, and we were doing some sort of profiling work. Um, and so after a, a number of years of work together, Eva moved into uh, teaching uh, and researching organised crime. So we had a natural link there and affinity with a number of research interests. So um, that started to get on the way. Petter um, is a professor of management and leadership in uh, BI University in Norway, which is the only sort of private university, and he's, uh, he, he does an enormous amount of publishing in, in different areas and has a keen interest in looking at policing. So he'd contacted Eva and wanted to work with the police, and Eva said, well, you know, really, if you want to work with the police and do some publishing, well, you better speak with Jeff in Australia because he's the one I work with. Um, and I had to almost give a tick of approval for uh, with Petter to say, yeah, come on board, and we've published a number of things, and then we ended up all together doing this book. So, yeah. Mm. Oh, great, great. And I suppose we should move on and actually talk about the book itself now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, do you want to give us a general rundown of what the book contains and what the purpose was behind writing it? Yeah, it really um – well, the purpose behind it, 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 it the, the name in terms of, uh, you know, illegal business entrepreneurialism is really looking at organised crime um, at the high end. Um, at, at, at not, I mean, we're not interested in just the, you know, the, the, the small-time sort of um, drug pusher or whatever else or, or gang that might want to get into that. Or It, it really is about that high-end market where, where there's a level of... Sophistication in running a business, um, and 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 they make huge profits, you know, just un- unbelievable profits from from what they do. So um, it, that really hadn't been looked at before in, in in that way. So the book conceptually is is structured around three parts. The first part we talk about the business of crime because we really had to understand it as a business. The second part was about the phases that are in a criminal business, and the third part was about well, how do you police that crime business? Or businesses. So, um, this first part, if, if um, I can just have a few more words about that. Oh, absolutely. It, it's about the entrepreneurialism of organised crime. So, again, um, 
there's a there's a lot of people who define organised crime in all sorts of ways, and I didn't get really hung up about producing a definition because not a lot of countries agree on a definition anyway. Uh, so I wanted to look at the entrepreneurial side, and for that I did, I looked at a, at a business enterprise sort of paradigm, and what are the sort of um, if you like the core capabilities that an entrepreneurial individual has, and then I tried to apply that within the context of criminal enterprises in markets and industries. So. So that first part really laid that conceptual foundation with that focal framework about business enterprises and about an entrepreneurial framework of the capabilities, if you like, or the capacities, or the core characteristics that that you would see operating in a, in a high-end criminal business. The second part really was about... Um, it, it, uh, the, the phases of a business. Uh, I mean, crime businesses follow the same path as anybody who wants to run a business. They, they first have to establish a crime business or establish a, a legitimate business. They then seek to expand that, obviously, to increase their profit. They then, if they've been successful and still in business after a few years, they like to try and consolidate that because they've expanded and with that brings issues. So a, a period of consolidation goes on and then if they're really in it for the long haul, they then have to position themselves with a business for the future and its future su uh, survivability. And that's exactly the same process that a, that, a, that a criminal enterprise will follow. They need to establish it, expand it, consolidate it and position it. So those four crime phases was really um, what I started to look at. And then the last phase of the book was how do you police that, which we can maybe talk about a little bit later on. Yeah. Yep, that's all right. Do you, want to, uh, do you have a good example like a, of one of the groups and how they sort of move through these phases? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the one that... Um I mean, there's lots of examples, but probably the the one that comes to mind is, is the one I used in the book about the banditos in Norway, because it, it, they uh, they were a group that, when the police eventually came to their attention, had been established, um, and then that's that phase of expanding, and and while they'd been around basically selling drugs as as some you know organised crime bikey groups do, uh, into that sort of stuff, drugs and prostitution, extortion, and so. Forth. But in terms of um, this this case study, that they had had really um, gotten to the point where they were starting to want to take over other people's turf, and so there was a rival gang um, in in a, a little seaside village, if you like, in Norway called Christiansand, which is uh, five hours from Oslo on the coast, and come summer, it expands from, you know, a limited number of people to, to thousands and thousands. And uh, so they had this rival crime group there, and so what they wanted to do was to um, to expand, and, and they started to do that by having basically, um, you know, shooting a few of the others um, <laughs> to push them out of business, yep. which... Which is one way to, you know, get your message across. Not an a very option, smart yeah. one. Yeah, it's not which, an option open to the average business. Though. No, and, and of course that then raised them as a red flag on the police radar. Up until then, if they, if they had any sense, they wouldn't have done that. And I can talk about other ways that, from a business perspective, they should have gone about their business. But because they were, you know, silly and dumb and stupid, they just started to use violence, which was their, you know, refined talent, if you like. 
and and of course they didn't get to consolidate the business because then the police cracked down on them like a you know a ton of bricks and um, yeah started arresting everybody and locking people up so it's an example of 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 a failed business um thankfully but of course like every organized crime group um when when police cracked down and this is an interesting example of 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 again um an operating principle if you like for competitive advantages that uh, uh, competitive advantage that criminals use that they will see that okay the police have taken out this gang and so what police might define as success the organized criminal from another gang will say hang on that's great now there's a vacuum they've taken away the bandito so now maybe an albanian organized crime group will come in and take over mm. Mm. Because because organised crime groups hate a vacuum. They just love to fill a vacuum, and so they then, uh, you know, so what police might determine as success is actually to the advantage of another group, and and that's often the the complexities involved here that that need to be thought through. That's why I talked about knowledge management in a policing context has to be a conceptually oriented approach rather than just you know a bunch of metrics and numbers about how many drug busts we've done or people were locked up. Yeah. So basically, if you're the police are creating market share yeah, yeah, for the exactly. competitors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and they, you know, so they because they 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 they're factored in as part of the business model <laughs> with organized with a smart organized crime group. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, there's there's lots of I mean, an example if you like of how um, they could have done that differently from a business perspective. That one of the things that uh, I mean, for example, if the triads were involved, or even the Albanians, because you know, while they have a reputation for being vicious, um, the way they go about that is different. So, and and also um, some of the groups in, in in America that have, what would happen is that a merger would take place. So the Bandidos, if they went to the opposition and said, "Look, there's enough money here for all of us. Um, we want to increase our market share. Let's let's do an alliance. Let's uh, create a." Um, a business model that allows us to expand um, and work together. Um, mm. and, 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 and I mean, the, the option then if they don't want to do that is, okay, we might then start coming around and shooting you, but that's not really in anybody's interest. They could have then increased their market share without drawing attention to the police and, and, and being, you know, happily going on with their business, so to speak. Um, but because they, they weren't that smart, and that and that's in terms of the way they were going about it, it, it allowed the thing to be taken down. But again, as I said, that just creates another context for somebody else. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that's come out a lot in uh, a lot of articles about organised crime the last couple of decades, that the recognition that organised crime groups don't have access to the normal means of resolving issues that other people have they can't take it to court they can't take it to arbitration so uh, they look for other mechanisms to resolve their conflicts and they, but they have the option of violence that the legitimate businesses don't have. Yeah, and they also have the option of corruption. You know. Yes. Um, you know, which is a big thing um, that uh, that they can utilise, and, and they can go about that in and, and extortion and so forth in 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 other ways that a legal business can't do. So, mm. so while they they don't have the disadvantages of going to court, they wouldn't necessarily see that as a disadvantage. Um, but they certainly have other advantages that the legitimate businesses don't. Have, which is why they can they can um, expand and grow in in context that a legitimate business can't. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should move on now to the, the response to all of this. So, mm. um, how do you think the police respond to this illegal business entrepreneurialism? 
Well, I mean, police are only one part of the jigsaw in combating organised crime, obviously. You, you really need a whole-of-government approach. Um, and and I, I, to give a, a rather sad example, but certainly they were on conceptually the right track, was, was what happened um, in the UK after fluffing around for, for many years trying to deal with it and various other organisations involved in bits and pieces of policing. They eventually took a, a, a whole of government joined up multi-agency approach to organised crime and that, was, and that really uh, came out of the Home Office and the, the Premier organisation, if you like, that um, led that sort of thing was what was called the Serious Organised Crime Agency in the UK and uh, that was established in 2006 and it was uh, a non-departmental body, public body, that, that, it, that incorporated a whole lot of people from the National Criminal Intelligence Service, the National Crime Squad, assets recovery agencies and a whole lot of other things, you know, taxation, immigration. So I joined them all up and it was, it was a, and I mean they were having a lot of success because because, you know, um, organised crime groups just love the fragmentation in policing because it allows them to just <laughs> work unseen uh, and across a whole lot of boundaries and structures that, that never talk to each other. And, and those sort of knowledge silos, if you like, that operate independently are just, you know, it's just madness if you ever want to effectively deal with, with organised crime. So the soccer approach um, was, was working well until, of course, the GFC hit. And um, and then there wasn't any money in the piggy bank in in Britain to fund all this, so it's actually been disbanded. Yep, and I'll just explain it to some yeah. people. GFC is an Australianism for global financial crisis, in case yeah. you weren't aware of that. But uh, yeah, the ones everybody's yeah. suffering from. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you know, and that that and so that that you know, conceptually it's the way to go, but but practically um, it's it's a costly business. But but really, when you look at the money that organised crime groups and 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 some of them make more than um, you know small countries in terms of the G in terms of their gross uh, domestic product. Yes. I mean, the mafia just just as a group, a collective of of four groups, you know that they will they will make more money than um, you know than than say countries uh, on an annual basis. It's, mm. it's just it's just extraordinary. Um, yeah. I think. Sorry, I was going to mention in terms of policing specifically, then policing really need to take a more strategic approach. And, and we have a diagram in the book, as you would guess, that mm. talks about targeted policing and competitive policing. And those sectors up there where there's a high police knowledge and high knowledge of that criminal activity is really where they need to be. But most policing that happens is really random and it's, and it, and it's a disadvantage to, you know, um, as I said, and, and, and smart crime groups just run rings around them. Mm. So let's get down to the detail of what you would have them do. Um, I've had the opportunity of once of actually teaching out of this book, and mm -hmm. uh, I know that there's a number of columns and a number of rows and uh, <laughs> that you run through. Do you want to give people just a brief rundown of the sort of information that you propose to put together to get a clearer knowledge-managed picture of uh, entrepreneurialism and illegal business? Yeah, look, it's and it's just a shame we just don't have that capacity for a video to see this, but... <laughs> Yeah, really what, what you're referring to, Mark, as, as you well know, is what I call the criminal business analysis matrix. And that's a CBAM, if you like. And in that, you have a row where you have at one side of it the 
entrepreneurial capabilities that you would see um, on the left-hand side where you have things like an opportunity perspective, resources mobilisation, decision-making under uncertainty, people uh, cooperation and then sort of profit maximisation. They're the sort of core capacities that, that anybody that wants to be an entrepreneur needs to develop or will have at least two or three of those things going for them. You might ha see a business opportunity, but unless you can maximise that in terms of bringing the resources to bear to deal with it and operate in a high-risk environment and make decisions in that and co get people's cooperation, you're not going to maximise your profit. You then have across the top um, the phases of establishing, expanding, consolidating and positioning. So you can actually get a, a developmental model, if you like, of, of how the business moves through time. But how, what moves the business along are what I'd call business factors. And those business factors, is a number of them, and I'll just maybe mention a, a few here, but at the expanding, you know, at the, at the establishing phase, they really obviously need an entrepreneurial vision. You have to have some sort of business um, financing and you have to have some crime money management and and so forth so that you start to bring in the capital, you have some operational logistics and then of course you need human resources. As you move along you want to expand, you need to have factors like business intelligence, uh, violence and corruption as I said are factors that, that organised crime groups use, counterintelligence, so some of the larger, uh, more sophisticated and, and long-term criminal groups for example, will actually send um, what we call clean recruits to the police academy to go through training and become police officers and work their way up into the system. So they, they have informants from the inside from day one and these people have been, been paid to go through the system. Um, and, and that's their whole role, to be sleepers until such time as they get to a position where they can uh, can operate. So not only do they bribe, can you bribe senior police, but you can also place informers there. You then, when you want to consolidate it, you have to look at criminal business um, connections and partnerships like we've talked about, legitimate business connections. You, you need to, if you want to, because the movement from organised crime groups, they, they will seek to legitimise a number of their other businesses so that they, at the core, they're, they're criminal and, and, and illegal, but they will surround themselves with, with legal business ventures. Um, the Mafia and the Echo Mafia, for example, have done that amazingly well in Italy. You have the uh, intellectual people, they, and, and not, so, but not so much intellectual, but influential people that they will connect with, politicians and so forth. And then, of course, they want to position for the long term the factors of a local market share as opposed to a global market share, and then what sort of competitive advantages can they run out to, to position themselves for the future. Uh, I mean, some triads have a 50-year view of what they're doing. You know, they're not interested in what's happening you know, in the next five years, is a mission statement. They have to take a 50-year view. Yeah. So do you find these groups, uh, or sorry, the, the different factors you've got there, are they applicable across the world so they're not culturally specific? No, no, that's right. They're business factors. And wherever there's a business, they'll be used. Uh, and, and, and that's that's why it's a, it's a, it's, the book is global in its, in its perspective and, and all of the case examples and there's some uh, 30 or, well, um, some about... Um, 34 diagrams, as I said, um, about 52 case examples of um, brief vignettes, and then there's seven major case studies ranging right across, and all of that's drawn from from various parts of the world, which is which is why my 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 two uh, 
co-authors that uh, were just so diligent in tracking down an enormous array of, of material that um, that I could utilise. Yes, these are your highly paid researchers, you were saying. Yeah, yes. that's right. As I said, I, I, I owe them a great debt in terms of the hard work they put in, but uh, yeah. So when, when police are actually looking at all these factors, how do they get the information to, to feed this information into your tables? Well, uh, well, that's they have intelligence units, obviously, proactive policing, um, intelligence-led policing, all of those different models of policing come into that. Um, a, a lot of those factors they will, they will have some handle on already. But obviously, um, the, the, the thing with, 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 with intelligence uh, units is they'll often just be tasked with a certain job and they'll only be looking at that piece of the puzzle. What, the, what this matrix gives them is a, is a, is a holistic view. So they can actually look at the, tra the tra trajectory, if you like, and say, okay, we've got some intel about a, a, a this group here, but and and, uh, and from those you know 16 or so factors that you're looking at, uh, often intelligence units in policing and so forth will only know four or five of those, or, or have some idea, or come across them at a certain point. Um, so that's the start. You, you put those factors down. But, but the, the advantage of this diagram and this matrix is, and filling it out is it gives you that holistic view. So they can begin to take a long-term view and they can begin to think, well, hang on, is this a, a group that are strategic in what they're doing? How have they gone about establishing themselves? And they can look at it and they can sort of say, well, where do they get their crime money from? You know, did they go and, and borrow some money from, from another crime group or did they do some bank robberies to get it and, and so forth? And, and the way they've gone about that and how they, you, you begin to get an understanding of, well, how savvy these people are or sophisticated or unsophisticated they are about what they're doing with their crime business. Um, and, and then, well, if, if they've, they've got a toehold here and we've, they've come up on our radar, but clearly the, the next phase they're going to be involved with is expanding. Now, how are they going to do that? So to expand that, they need some business intelligence. Um, will they use violence and corruption? Will they use counterintelligence? You know, will they be bribing police officers to, to know what areas we're targeting? They're the sort of questions they start to ask. So, so a much more strategic-oriented approach at an at a, at a executive management level to overview this process is what then begins to happen and then you begin to say well hang on look we're, we're only one part in this we need to know what the tax people are doing we need to know how they're, they're functioning in, in other ways what their contacts are obviously once you've got some intelligence you use things like surveillance phone taps all those other technological whiz-bang things that we have to, uh, to target people Yep. So it's really, it's sort of pushing them in the direction of cross-agency and inter-jurisdictional cooperation. Yeah, and while some of that goes on, but, but I, think, I think where it falls down is, is often, you know, other agencies will begin to think, well, you know, well, you know, why do they want this information? What's this about? Or it goes a low priority. Whereas if you can, if you can have that whole government approach, or you can have this, this mud map, if you can take, if you like, this, this CBAM, criminal business analysis matrix, to an agency and say, listen, this is what we're aiming at. We want to fill in these factors here. You've got information that intelligence or data that can help that um, so I mean that that's why it makes eminent sense to to talk about as I originally said that knowledge managed policing is first about having a conceptually oriented framework and, and in terms of the operation of organized crime and high-end criminality that's in that diagram 
And that's the sort of thing that needs to then be discussed and talked about at interdepartmental levels, cross-border meetings with other organisations so they, they begin to appreciate that, first of all, you have to be on the same page, you have to have the same concept, the same vision and see what you're working towards. Then you can then you can do something effectively about it. But at, but at this point in time, you know, they, they, the crime groups, you know, intuitively know all this, or the smarter ones have mapped out their business plan like this. Yep. So they can even use this. Policing agencies could use the matrix as a means of, um, if you like, uh, pushing themselves towards working out whether they're doing their own strategic intelligence sufficiently well, or whether they've got gaps in their knowledge. Yeah, that that's right. But but also, I mean, you know, they certainly have strategic intelligence. But they, but it's it's like the you know the old um, you know uh, you know connecting up the dots problem. Everybody has a part of a dot, but nobody connects it. I mean, obviously, nine yeah. eleven is an example of that. That the CIA had information, the FBI had information. Nobody talked to each other, and nobody could connect the dots. Yeah. And organised crime works in exactly the same way. And in yeah. fact, they, they they love the the the, the, the fragmentation within police because it, it allows them to have a free hand. Yep, yep. Have you had much feedback from um, any policing agencies on the book? Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I have. I mean, I, the Australian Federal Police here have asked me to present on it on a, on a couple of um, important forums in terms of with their executive management and, and other agencies uh, and other places I've been to in the world and have uh, had contact with. They've, they've shown a, a keen interest. Uh, uh, I know when the book first came out, it was launched at the European Society of Criminology Conference um, in September 2010, and I, I distinctly recall the commissioning editor ringing me up and, and, and telling me um, with great delight that they actually sold the book out at the conference. And he said, That's we've good. never had a book rushed like that so much. Oh, he <laughs> wasn't actually... generous enough to fly you to the conference? No, they are, oh, no, they know. It wasn't generous enough for, to get me over to, to Oxford. I just got a phone call. Um, but I did was over there later in the year and did, did confirm that, yes, they had to fly some more books over. Cause, uh, and uh, so they were in, in the book sales, uh, are doing well. And, and, I, and from what I can see when I occasionally get a bit of a printout there are a lot of agencies and people a diverse group uh, have, have looked at and, are, and hopefully are using some of the ideas um. Well I think there's a very unusual thing for an academic to be saying, I think the book sales are doing well, that would be pretty <laughs> rare <laughs> Well it wasn't meant as a, I mean I use it as a textbook but it really is, it was a meant as for, a, for, for wider audience, you know, for really yes, sort of yes, policy right. government policy direction, policing it's got applications for a whole range of people here but you're not going to get a movie deal. I don't think so. No, <laughs> no. Probably, probably they'd make a movie deal out of the 35 or so case studies in there, and each of them in the brief vignettes would there'd be a storyline you could write about them. You know, yeah, yeah. Some, so some any, quite any, horrific. Yeah. Any chance that any of the criminal groups are buying it to learn how? You know, oh, I'm sure. I, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure the smart ones would would definitely be on on the on the uh, on the on the hit list for the Good. for the sales. Um, there you, I, go. you heard it here I wouldn't first. Ex- I wouldn't expect otherwise. I mean, I I put in my forward that one of the great difficulties in writing this, um, with the level of detail and specificity, was was how do you write that in a way that doesn't allow a criminal group to get better at what it's doing? Um, you know, which is a real dilemma. Um, mm. But but I also face the issue of but we need to educate police and agencies and governments 
in a better way to go about this or else we really will continue to, to never get a handle on organised crime. So it was a sort of a trade-off. There was some stuff I just didn't put in the book that would have been good, but you could you hold it for a training course or a, or a workshop with, with, with a closed audience because you, yes. you just don't want to give away too many trade secrets, so to speak. But, but I think, you know... I. I I probably rationalise it. Well, most crime groups that are smart and gang somewhere, they would have known this already. It's probably just confirmed their intuitions, and they'll probably have a have a smirk and a smile about it. But I hopefully, won't give them too much of a competitive advantage. But it hopefully will give police a much better handle on, and and law enforcement agencies on uh, mm. and a competitive advantage against such groups. Yeah. Oh, great, great. So I suppose we can uh, move on now to uh, another important question, and that's what are you working on now? What's coming up next for Jeff? Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, um, I suppose, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of interest in, in research interests, I mean, police corruption and so forth, and uh, I will certainly continue to write and organise crime. Probably what's attracted my interest at the moment is, is really trying to extend the knowledge management policing framework and the principles and practices that I'm sort of developing and refining as I go about writing these books into sort of further uncharted waters uh, in, in, like terrorism and violent extremism. Because while there's a lot written about those topics um, and a lot of uh, obviously research and, and that has is, is gone on as a result of the, the 9-11, um, I don't really think we have much of a conceptual handle on that in, in, in a much more pragmatic way that, that I would like to see. So I'm really looking at trying to develop some sort of complexity model of that sort of violent extremism and melding that with, with uh, knowledge-managed policing because of the way that uh, that I've been refining that work. So, yeah, that'll keep me busy for the next oh, few years, I would think. Oh, that's, good. Yeah. that's good. That's good. And is Petter involved in that one as well? Uh, possibly not. No, no, oh, okay. I, I, no, no. I, we, we, we've got other projects we do with Petter, but uh, but I don't know whether that'll end up in a book or whether I'll do a third one with with Oxford. I'm, I'm just a bit booked out at the moment. I've been yes. very, <laughs> but I certainly will continue researching, and and there'll be some joint publications as I as I like to do with a whole range of people around the world um, in a sort of multidisciplinary way, because no one discipline has has it all, and. Uh, huh. So, um, so yeah, I, I would expect that uh, hopefully somebody listening to this this interview might uh, want to say, well, listen, yeah, I can I can write something with this guy, or I can do that, and uh, I'll be looking forward to any further correspondence. Excellent. Well, there you go. You have an open offer. <laughs> yeah, Anyone out there? Right. <laughs> just just uh, just let me pencil it into my diary. You know, <laughs> getting a bit full. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, I think uh, Jeff's um, information contact details will be put on the uh, oh, okay. New Books Network. Uh, website as well when I put up the blog for this podcast. Okay, well, um, thank you very much for your time, Jeff. Um, uh, Very interesting conversation about this book. And as I said, I have had the opportunity to teach out of this book. And it's a very, very thorough uh, examination of the issue. So um, thank you very much. And uh, we better close there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Jeff Dean talk about his new book, Organized Crime, Policing Illegal Business and Entrepreneurialism published by Oxford University Press. I'm Mark Locks, the co-host of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. Thank you for listening.